So as many of you know who come here regularly, have been at Spirit Rock regularly, the teachings that we teach here are grounded in the Buddhist tradition. I'm saying that because there may be others of you who have not been here so frequently and may not know that, but that is the truth. So this morning I'm going to go Buddhist on you. And, and I want to give you the, the, the very foundation of our practice because it feels important that we all start in a common place, even though we've started already, but that we gather our understanding around some common uh, facts. Sort of, this is sort of the facts on the ground talk. <laughs> what the Buddha considered important for us to realize if we're going to practice, if we're going to come to a greater sense of uh, fearlessness and peace and harmony in our lives, we need to begin with where we are, kind of what's so in the human condition. So, um, so I'll, 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 I'll read first, I'll begin with a story that Norman Fisher tells in his wonderful book on compassion. Um, by the way, the book list, I think you all have it now, it's almost impossible to, to not include so many very fine Dharma books on that list. And Norman would, Norman's book on uh, Lujong, on compassion practice, I would say, would be one that you could easily add to the list. But I didn't, I, I confined the list to really books that are particularly on the topic that we're exploring. But in any case, this is a story from Norman Fisher's very fine book on compassion. And this is the story. There's an old Zen saying, the whole world's upside down. In other words, the way the world looks from the ordinary or conventional point of view is pretty much the opposite of the way the world actually is. There's a story that illustrates this. Once there was a Zen master called Bird's Nest Roshi because he meditated in an eagle's nest at the top of a tree. This was quite a dangerous thing to do. One gust of wind, one sleepy moment, and he was done for. He became became quite famous for this precarious practice. So one day a government official came to visit him and asked the Roshi what possessed him to live in such a dangerous manner. The Roshi answered, You call this dangerous? What you are doing is far more dangerous. Living normally in the world, ignoring death, ignoring impermanence and loss and suffering, as we all routinely do, as if this were a normal and safe way to live, is actually much more dangerous than going out on a limb to meditate. So that is a very, uh, that is kind of what I'm referring to when I say the facts on the ground. Let's get real about what's going on in this human life. (laughs) Let's not try to uh, make it otherwise. 
So this this is called transforming bad circumstances into the path. Or like we heard earlier, uh, this is this is an adventure, but not an adventure I really want to be on. You know, facing death. It's not the adventure I I had I I would like to be doing. So the attitude that we'd come to practice with is okay. It's this is not what I would like, but this is my practice. How to open beyond what I want, what I like, what I think should be happening to how it is. So this is a talk about the Four Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths, which are kind of the bedrock of all Buddhist practices. Um, I've always found it interesting that after the Buddha's awakening, this was the first talk he gave after he'd had this big, you know, liberating experience and he was all happy and, you know, just like, like, I did it, it's happened, I'm liberated, I'm free, you know, I mean, it's like the best thing that could have ever happened, happened to him. And he went to find his friends, but he didn't start with, hey guys, listen, let me tell you about this amazing experience I had. He didn't go there. Like we might be tempted to say when we come home from retreat, wow, I had this amazing experience. He didn't do that. He said, no, the, this, is, this is where we start. We start with the fact that there are difficult things in life. There's a kind of suffering that we are subject to in this human realm. And I want to talk about that. And he said in the course of his teaching, Buddha said over and over, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. That was his focus. His focus was not metaphysical. The Buddha didn't teach about what's good and what's bad, which is often the purview of religions. He didn't go there. That wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing is, is there suffering? And how can we find a way to diminish or end that suffering? Opening to suffering, learning how to practice with it, to make it our practice, to be with it, and out of that develop what what is what are called the the two essential streams of practice, wisdom and compassion. That our suffering is what teaches us how to be wise, how to be compassionate. There's nothing there's no other way to learn those things, actually. Compassion is the, the force of love in the human heart when it's encountered with suffering. There can be other forces at work as well, and we'll look at those. But the, 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 the way to uh, make the encounter with suffering meaningful and a, a force for our own growth is to think in terms of how to open the heart with compassion. So the word suffering in the Pali language is dukkha, dukkha. And it often, every talk I've ever heard on the Four Noble Truths always talks about how dukkha means this kind of 
defective wheel. In the old days in India, they had wooden carts with wooden wheels. And dukkha is, was a description of a wheel that wasn't correctly constructed, so every time the wheel turned, the cart would bump or lurch. or You know, it's like trying to drive a car with a flat tire. You know what that's like. You know, it's just a wheel that's not... It's not... It's frustrating because it's not operating correctly. So dukkha is that sense of things never being quite right. Things not being perfect. Things not being how I want them to be. That's dukkha. That's the, the, that's the experience. Other words used to describe it, describe dukkha are this sense of insecurity, of never being sure how things are going to turn out, instability, uncertainty, imperfection, conditions not being right so that we feel frustrated, unsatisfactory. The two definitions that I usually land on are One, that which is difficult to bear. Whatever the situation, it's just difficult to bear. You're waiting in line, or you're in traffic, or things aren't happening how you wanted them to be happening. It's just, there's nothing like, it's not a crisis exactly, it's just difficult to bear. Or, another definition, is wanting things to be different than they are. Having a preference, maybe a slight preference. Right now you might see if there's a slight preference in you operating for a better kind of seat or different temperature in the room or can't we talk about something else than the Four Noble Truths. Or You know, you might just notice in your own mind that There's always that, oh, it could be so much better if, or why don't we do this, or, you know, wanting things to be different than they are. The Buddha described three kinds (coughs) of dukkha, three kinds of suffering. (coughs) There's no limit, really, to the the ways we can describe dukkha, but this is one way to organize our thoughts around it. There's dukkha dukkha. Dukkha dukkha is just when things are painful. And one of the obvious things that is painful in human life is the human body. It's born. It falls down. It gets broken. It gets, it's fragile. It's vulnerable. It gets sick. It gets old. And eventually it dies. So there's this just general category of dukkha dukkha, just the painful effect of being in a human body. And pains of all kinds. Any kind of pain that's just obviously unpleasant. Dukkha dukkha. Then there's sankara dukkha. The suffering of the mind and heart different mind states, different emotional states, the sense of frustration, lack of satisfaction, despair, disgust, anger, 
all the states of mind and heart that we entertain in the course of our lives. Sankara dukkha. Um, Another way to describe this kind of dukkha is the experience of getting what you don't want. In life, maybe you've gotten a bunch of that. I've gotten stuff I don't want. I don't want to have to deal with this, but here it is. Uh, Or not getting what you do want. I really, I know that I want that. I really want it. I want it. But you're not getting it, and you never will get it. That's painful. And then there's the suffering of not being able to hold on to something that you like. You got it, it's yours, and then you lose it. It goes away. It changes its mind. It leaves you. It it dies. It, it just disappears. It's gone. You lost something you really liked. <clears throat> One image for this kind of dukkha is... It's like a dog with a dry bone. You know how dogs love bones, but you throw it an old dry dog uh, bone where there's nothing of any flavor or meat or juice left in it. It's just an old dry bone. And the dog will try to get something from that bone. You know, they'll chew on it, they'll, <laughs> you know, but nothing comes. That's a kind of, that sense of dissatisfaction and trying to find something that's just not there. It's a futile endeavor. We're trying to get something from a person or a situation or an event that just doesn't have what we are looking for. But we keep at it. If I, if I try harder, if I improve myself, whatever. And the third kind of dukkha is called anicca dukkha. Anicca is the word for impermanence, referring to the fact of a key feature of this human life, of life itself, actually, is the fact of ceaseless change. That everything in this world that comes to being is also, at some point, going to not be there. People die, objects get old and fall apart, cars die. Everything that comes together will eventually come apart, you could say. So this this process of ceaseless change that we're all subject to by virtue of being born and seeing how we need to learn to navigate the waves of change in our lives. We can't make things be just how we want them and sustain that for a long period of time. No, we get things we want, they come in moments, but then they go. And we're left again, you know, trying to find something that will feel what, like, like what we want, what will give us pleasure, satisfaction, a sense of well-being. We're always seeking that, searching that, security. 
I need security. And so we're looking for things outside of ourselves constantly to give us something that, that like a dry bone, they really can't give because they, they too are subject to constant, ceaseless change. Or we do get something and we try to hold on. Or we have an idea about how things are that's not in accord with reality. I happen to think people who deny climate change are, you know, like, wake up. Where are you? Don't you see the truth of it? But there are some people who, who are not in that, you know, they don't believe it. So being in touch with the truth of change as an ongoing experience in our lives gives us access to a sense of reality. This is what the way it is. And it gives us opportunities to figure out, to practice how to... I'd like to say surf the waves of change. Surfers have to learn how to surf. How do they do it? By getting out there and starting with the small waves and then working their way up to the big changes. They learn. It's on the job training. You can't, you can see all the videos in the world of surfers, but you, eventually you have, <laughs> you have to get out there and, and try yourself and figure out how to ride the wave. So we have a chance in our own lives to consciously or more consciously learn how to surf the waves of change. So the Four Noble Truths is a teaching of cause and effect. It talks about the fact that there is suffering, but it doesn't only talk about that. It talks about there being a cause of our suffering, and there t- and it talks about uh, the end of suffering and how to live in a way that diminishes our suffering. So there's a lot of s- kind of encouragement to find better ways of being with these sort of uh, difficult facts of life. It is said the cause of suffering. What is the cause of suffering? Basically, wanting things to be different than they are. We could pretty much put anything in that category. Wanting things to be different than they are. Not that that's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just that that's the way it is. We want things to be different than they are. Sometimes the Buddhist words for this are craving, grasping, and clinging. (laughs) We crave something. And we grasp onto it. And once we have it, we cling to it. We don't want to let it go. The cause for the end of suffering is this practice, you could say, this understanding of the need to let go. So letting go is a big feature of insight practice. And we learn this almost immediately in our practice. 
the moment we sit down for the first time in meditation and we hear somebody say, come back to the breath, come to the breath. Let go of your thinking and come to the breath. That's the beginning of learning to let go. And it's no small thing. It may seem like a really small thing when you're sitting there and you're just like, okay, back to the breath, big deal, blah, blah, blah. But actually you're learning a very important lesson, how to choose what to attend to, how to let go of distraction, let go of beliefs, let go of views and opinions and wantings and everything else that comes up that tends to lead us into more suffering. And mindfulness is the key, whether we're talking about absolute perfect enlightenment or whether we're talking about coming back to the breath. Mindfulness is the key. Mindfulness is the superpower of of every moment of our lives, if we understand it rightly. That when we bring mindfulness to anything, we are tasting what it means to not suffer. When we can be with our experience directly through the breath, through walking, feeling our steps on the ground, through noticing what it is like to feel despair in the body and just coming into the sensations one by one, feeling the movement of what we are calling despair as it moves in the body. Those are moments where we are touching a a radical kind of freedom that is free of suffering. Mindfulness teaches us that. I don't know anything else that does. Mindfulness gives us the direct experience of what it is like to just be here without clinging, without wanting, without agitation about it should be this way and I'm pissed that it's not. No, we're just, okay, breathing in, breathing out. Sensations, tightness, throbbing, vibration, whatever it is in the body that we're feeling, to have a direct experience of it, it, there's no problem. There's no more struggle. And of course, the ultimate big end of suffering, the liberating, enlightened end of suffering comes with the 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 putting out of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, what the Buddha called the three poisons of mind, the three big things that get us in trouble. Greed, wanting, wanting, wanting. Aversion, not wanting, not wanting, not wanting. Get rid of, I hate it, no. Irritation. And delusion, not really knowing what's what. Ignorance, we could say. And all three, if you wonder what they are, read the news. (laughs) They are alive and well in this crazy world. So... Awakening means putting out the fires, no longer 
believing the story of greed, believing the story of aversion, believing the story of delusion. We're awake. So the Buddha, when he was asked after his awakening, people saw him and they were struck by his appearance and they said, who are you? What have you been up to? What's, what's your story? Tell us, you know. And he only would say to them three words. I am awake. That was the important thing. He had let go and he was awake. So we use mindfulness to learn how these four noble truths play out in our actual experience. They are not meant to be dogma. Oh, I'm a Buddhist now because I believe in the four noble truths. It's not like that. They're not beliefs. They're a proposition to test in your own experience. Is it true? They are meant to be practiced with so we can see how they will work. Can we recognize when there's suffering in our experience? Can we recognize the cause of that? What is it that's got us hooked? We could think of the causes where we're hooked. Oh, I think I'm right. That's what the hook is. I know I'm right. How could I not be right? Of course I'm right. (laughs) Or do we have a belief that Oh, I'm suffering because I have an idea this shouldn't be happening. Or I have a belief that uh, I have a better uh, way to do this than that person. These may may be true, but if it's making you suffer, then you need to look at it. This is the usefulness of the Four Noble Truths to see how we are ourselves contributing or adding to or creating our own suffering. Yes, there's dukkha in the world. Yes, it's painful. And what are we, how are we adding to that or not adding to that in our response to the fact of it? Yes, we die. What a drag. We're all going to die. We have to deal with it. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, you know, a lot of people would never come to a class like this. Okay, I see that it's true. So how can I respond to the fact of it in a wiser, more compassionate way? How can I help myself not suffer around it? How can I help others not treat it as a crisis or a disaster or something just horrible, horrible, should never happen? (laughs) We find all those attitudes around us about death. Oh, it's such a tragedy. No, it's not exactly a tragedy. It's a natural part of life. Nature. Trees fall over. Things die. We're subject to the same laws. So Achan Shah, uh, our grandfather, 
Thai forest teacher um, that Jack studied with. We all feel like we know him from Jack's stories. He said there are two kinds of suffering. The kind of suffering that leads to more suffering and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. What was he talking about? He was talking about in our practice we are looking at something difficult that you could say is suffering. Yeah, but that's it's the kind of suffering that will help us come to the end of suffering. We're asking ourselves to look at things that we would rather not look at, to feel things we'd rather not feel, with the idea that this is the... This is how we come to terms with it. This is how we can make peace with it. The suffering that leads to more suffering is to have a big fit about it, have a big reaction, a big, I hate this, I don't, blah, blah, and who's to blame, and I'm to blame, or somebody's to blame, or having a reaction to suffering that just adds to the whole stress of the situation. When we meet our suffering with mindfulness and compassion, it begins to gently transform. It begins to gently unwind as we practice meeting it over and over again. Oh, I mean, those of us who put (laughs) our time on the pillow, you perhaps know, you know, you think you've dealt with something and you sit down at a retreat or someplace and you're, oh my God, I'm still having that same story about that person or that anger or that grief, the grief, why doesn't it go away? By now it should be gone. There it is again. So, okay, grief, welcome. Let's see what's up. Let's be together. Let's breathe. Let's sit here. Let me open my heart to this one more time. This is what transforms our suffering over time. As Stephen Levine said in his book, the more we practice how to have a bad day, oh, the more we practice how to have a bad day well, the better a day it will be. So on our cushion, we're practicing how to be with what we don't want to be with. (laughs) And in that, something transforms. This quality of compassion grows in us as we meet suffering. Compassion is this often quite spontaneous response to some kind of suffering. We see something on the news. We see a person in the street. We see a relative of ours ill and not doing well. We see a child fall down. We see something and our heart is touched. It happens like that, right? It's not like you have to think about it. Oh, oh, we have, oh, I should now feel compassionate. No, it's just right there. You see people on the news running into burning buildings to save people. 
they're not thinking about compassion. They're just acting because something in them has responded with that. I want to help. That's what compassion is. I want to help. We don't know if we can help. We don't, but we want to help. And it is very much supported by wisdom to see suffering as suffering, not necessarily looking for somebody to blame, not necessarily my fault that this happened, not necessarily your fault, not anybody's fault. It is just the way it is. When we can see suffering as just suffering that needs something from us without a lot of story about it, life gets simpler. And we also begin to sense the universality of suffering, that others are imperfect imperfect, and so are we, that others are insecure, frightened, and so are we. We begin to meet in a more equal playing field, you could say, when we are opening ourselves to the suffering in the world. And this is an important point because in our culture, suffering is mostly seen as the purview of psychology or psychotherapy. Somebody's suffering, you go to the therapist. It's your fault. Something is not, you're not dealing with it or you're, there's some wound, there's something you need to do that it's sort of put on you as sort of like you have to improve yourself because you're suffering. Instead of this kind of approach, the Buddha pointed to dukkha as a shared, universal, human phenomenon. All humans are subject to the sufferings of mind and body. The physical pains, the emotional upsets, the mental struggles, wanting what you don't have, hating what you do have, the distress of losing what you love. When we suffer, we tend to feel isolated and alone. What's wrong with me? Instead, the Buddha suggested over and over again that we remember when we are suffering, that we remember those others having the same or even more difficult kinds of experiences. An example of this is a a little story of a woman in the Buddhist time. Her name was Kisa Gotami. She was a young girl, young woman, had a and she had a her first child was a little boy and as an infant he died suddenly he he died and she could not accept the fact that he died she kept wandering around in her village saying i need medicine please give me medicine for my son <coughs> i want to make him well and she was just sort of distraught with grief and going on about wanting medicine. and So finally somebody said to her, why don't you go talk to the Buddha? He's a doctor. He will help you. He was often called a doctor because of his, he, you know, he had healing powers in the sense of him being wise and compassionate. So anyway, he, she went to see the Buddha and he said, okay, I can help you. 
here's what I need you to do. Go to the, your village and find a house where no one has ever died and bring me some mustard seeds from that house. So, of course, she went to the village and knocked on doors and, is this a house where no one has died? Oh, no, that many people have died in this house. Is this a house where no one has died? No, no, we've had many deaths in this house. She could not find a house where no one had died. And that woke her up to the fact that her son was not the only person in the world who died. And so she... she. Uh, She, she was healed in a certain way of her grief with this understanding. She took her son to Barry and she said, Dear little son, I thought that you alone had been overtaken by this thing which people call death. But you are not the only one death has overtaken. This is a law common to all mankind. All things are impermanent. So she got some wisdom from this experience. So losing a child or a loved one is a shared experience. We are more alike in our suffering than we sometimes let ourselves know. So this is an important understanding of how the how to relate to this fact that we're not separate and alone with this struggle to deal with mortality. We're all in this together. And in that togetherness, we can recognize with our hearts open, with our hearts more vulnerable, more tenderized, you could say, we can recognize our common plight, our common joys, and our common sorrows. We are part of a vast interdependent web of living and dying. Someone did a study of the comfort level of people from different religions in the face of illness and death. Who scored highest? The practicing Buddhists. Why? Because they have trained with compassion in the face of suffering. That's why it's so important to, you know, talk about it and encourage that we learn that move in the face of suffering. It happens spontaneously, but we also need to train ourselves to understand what compassion is. It's not pity. It's not, I'm better than you. I'm too bad for you. You know, I'm... No, it's that immediate recognition of kinship of that desire to help, to care. It is the willingness to feel the pain, to feel 
and to care and maybe not have a solution, but you're there. Your solution maybe for now is just your presence, your willingness to be with this difficult feeling. So I want to focus a little bit more on anicca dukkha, the, the, the fact of ceaseless change and that that is a, a kind of suffering that we need to come to terms with. So here are some other words that, that mean anicca, that mean impermanence. I've said impermanence, ceaseless change, but also they include unpredictability. When things are changing, we never know in what direction necessarily. Inconstancy, unreliability, instability, uncertainty, uncontrollability. None of us knows when we are going to die. or how we are going to die. It's not under our control. We can't predict. There's a teacher who said, his name is Philip Dick, he said, reality is that which when you stop believing in it doesn't go away. So if you stop believing in Anicca, I don't believe in change. No, 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 the Buddha had it all wrong. That's not going to make it go away. It will still show itself, like gravity. I don't believe in gravity anymore. (laughs) So our task is to understand the truth of this Anicca, that change is inevitable, and We study it. We allow its truth in. We learn to ride the waves. We learn to accept change as the way of living things. Not a mistake, not a disaster, not a personal failure. Just the way it is. Many of you have heard this beautiful poem by Naomi Shihab Nye on kindness. We read it so much here. But I thought I'd read parts of it that are particularly relevant to what I'm talking about. She says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows 
and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head above the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So Achan Shah would often give a teaching that went like this. He'd say to people, you see this glass? He'd say, people would say yes. Thank you. Uh, to me, this glass is already broken. I have no illusions about its immortality. I know it's not going to be here forever. But while it is here, I can appreciate it. It's very useful having a glass to hold water. It's what a great object to have in one's possession. But I'm under no illusion about it. In just the same way, can we say, this body, this body is already broken. Let's try this on. This body is already dead. But while it is here, I can appreciate it. I can use it. I can enjoy it. I can fully inhabit this human embodiment. But without the illusion of its immortality. So I'd like to also tell you a story of an Iraqi veteran who used this same principle in the middle of war. In the middle of war, he was scared, really frightened. He found somehow an 18th century samurai manual, and he read this. Meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily. So instead of fearing my end, I owned it. Every morning after doing maintenance on my Humvee, I'd imagine getting blown up by an IED, shot by a sniper, burned to death, run over by a tank, torn apart by dogs, captured and beheaded, succumbed to dysentery. Then, before we rolled out through the gate, I'd tell myself that I didn't need to worry because I was already dead. 
The only thing that mattered was that I did my best to make sure everyone came back alive. If, so the manual said, if by setting one's heart right every morning and evening, one is able to live as though his body were already dead, he gains freedom in the way. So those are some encouragements, perhaps, with the idea of what we're doing here. Some spiritual teachers talk about dying before you die. That's what these stories represent. We can't make this happen but we can invite it, some awareness of this. We can invite in. We can open ourselves to the import of this in our own lives. 